Well, the last half hour, we spoke about how disinformation is spread on social media, but the war in Ukraine, specifically efforts to sell the Kremlin's justification for that illegal invasion, a war that's killed uh, thousands of civilians, displaced millions more. Well, unlike the keyboard warriors sitting comfortably at home in some basement bashing out propaganda, others actually spend time on the ground in Ukraine now, reporting the war and all its brutality and its impact firsthand. And one of those reporters is Global News senior correspondent Jeff Semple, who's just back from reporting in Ukraine, including in the east, where the war continues to rage. I'm here in the city of Sloviansk in the Donetsk Oblast in eastern Ukraine. And this area was just hit. As you can see, several apartment buildings, a school damaged over here after Russian rocket fire overnight. And as you can see, the cleanup now well underway. From what we've been told, several people were killed here, even more were injured. This appears to be just a residential neighborhood in Sloviansk, which is in the Donbass, Ukraine's industrial heartland in the east and Vladimir Putin's stated target. Russian-backed separatists have controlled about a third of the Donbass for the past eight years, and Putin now wants to finish what he started. Sloviansk is, appears to be one of the next stops on Russia's warpath. Russian forces are moving close, closer and closer to here. They are slowly gaining ground. And we spoke to the mayor of the nearby community of Kramatorsk, who says that he believes the next two weeks will be critical in this war. Sloviansk uh, was a town that I was also in back in 2014, uh, just north of Donetsk. Uh, Jeff Semple there reporting on the ground. Well, he landed back in Canada today, and uh, I'm pleased to say Jeff joins me from Toronto. Thanks so much for your time. Welcome home. Yeah, thanks, man. Yeah, it's nice to be home. Just back, just off the plane, and uh, have some laundry to do, but it's nice to be home. <laughs> the glamorous life of the war correspondent. Um <laughs> I mean, you're you're back. You've been a few times now. Uh, what's the mood like? What was it like to be there again? What what differences are you seeing uh, over your previous trips? Yeah, I mean, there were many differences. The last time I was there was like I guess sort of two months earlier, so sort of March, April, and then you know this this one sort of May, June, early June, obviously. Um, and you know, it really feels now the biggest difference. I think when we were there the first time is the whole country felt like it was you know, really under threat, like everywhere from Lviv, Odessa, Kiev, Kharkiv, and of course the Donbass, like everybody was bracing for impact if they weren't being hit already. Uh, and this time it's sort of become, you know, at the risk of oversimplifying it, a, a tale of two countries. It's is the story of Ukraine. Like there's the, the, the West is very peaceful, you know, Lviv, even Kiev now, you know, we spent some time there um in the capital it was hit just uh, just the other day but before that it hadn't been hit with a missile strike in over a month and you know when we were there in kiev the first time back in early april it was a, a ghost town uh, we were trying to drive around trying to find a place to eat uh, and then we had a restaurant to ourselves this time we could barely get a table in that restaurant uh, like the place was packed people are sipping lattes during the day and craft beer at night like it just feels like it's back to being another major european city at peacetime and then of course you drive east to Kharkiv and the Donbass in particular which of course is the stated target of this Russian invasion now and uh, it's a completely different experience I mean it was it was horrific a lot of these communities just look post-apocalyptic um, and so it, yeah well, that was really heart-wrenching and it was just you know when we were there it was just day after day of just horrific stories I mean one in particular 
comes to mind near Kharkiv, where we went into this village and this woman had been killed by a Russian airstrike in her home in Vilhivka. A piece of shrapnel hit her backyard and flew through the window and killed her. And then her son wanted to bury her. So he gets this burial party together of sort of friends and colleagues. And as they're burying her in this local cemetery, another Russian rocket hits the cemetery and kills two members of the burial party, uh, two young men in their 20s. So it was just like horror after horror, uh, you know, in a lot of these Eastern communities. Uh, and then you drive, you know, 10 hours to the West and, and you're in places that feel like the war couldn't be further away. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was very similar. I mean, for listeners who who don't remember this, the, there has been a war going on technically in in the Donbass for eight years now. For a long time, Ukraine has felt a bit like two countries. I imagine it's different now, much more serious in the Donbass. Uh, you spent some time in Kharkiv, really documenting some of the destruction there. Um, it, it's it's heart wrenching to to see it from afar because you know that these are civilians being targeted in the places where they live. These are not military uh, targets by any stretch of the imagination. And you saw you saw the aftermath of that. I mean, the destruction, just the level of destruction all the way down as you head towards Slovyansk and, and, and uh, Kramatorsk and so on must be just, just gutting. Yeah. And you're right. I mean, you know, despite the, the propaganda that we hear, of course, from the Russian side um, and, you know, I hear it from people here in Canada often, you know, I came home the first time and people asked me uh, like, seriously, a few people asked me here in Canada, what's really going on? in Ukraine. Like we heard when you just got home, what's really going on over there? Like they don't know what to believe. Uh, and there was just like, if there's any doubt in your mind, like just to be unequivocal about the civilian targets are being bombed every single day in Ukraine. Yeah. Every single day, apartment buildings, uh, schools, uh, you know, often the Ukrainian military has used, you know, abandoned schools as, as a place to take shelter. And then the Russians will hit that. But <laughs> You know, we're talking apartment buildings that are packed full of civilians that are getting hit every single day. Uh, and we're finding evidence of, you know, weapons that are banned by most countries like cluster munitions, which are by their very nature, just wildly indiscriminate. A bomb blows up in, in midair and then it releases all of these other little bombs that explode all over the place. So we found evidence of cluster munitions in, in a number of areas in Kharkiv. So it is, yeah, it is just, it is absolutely horrific and, and it is targeting civilians. And you know, what's interesting, Ben, is, you know, Kharkiv is just 40 kilometers from the Russian border. Uh, the, the vast majority of that pre-war population there spoke Russian, you know, close ties to Russia. A lot of their relatives live in Russia. It's sort of like Canada, the United States, like there was just, yeah. you know, a close affinity. And and now they, they're they just sickened and, and don't know what to think. And, you know, they are some of them now civilians taking up arms for the first time, learning to use a, an, an AK-47 or a Kalashnikov to, to try and kill Russians that are invading their home. It's yeah. It's hard to it's hard to even just wrap your head around. What was it like for you just trying to get around? I, I know a lot of the times uh, when it comes to covering these things, you know, and it doesn't, you don't see it as the viewer at home, but, but it is 90% logistics and 10% reporting. Uh, what's it been like just security wise, getting around, moving around? Uh, what was it like this time in the East? Yeah. And that's exactly what I say to young journalists when they, they, they want to do this sort of thing. And it's like important to remind people that it, it is 90% logistics is exactly right. Uh, my colleague, Stuart Bell, likens it to reporting, trying to do journalism with a fire hose blasting in your face the whole time, just because there are so many challenges constantly. And in this case, the first time getting around was a real challenge back in March and April. There were so many checkpoints and journalists were 
um, you know, had, had at first been welcomed, but then there was sort of this almost this crackdown on Western journalists because by the Ukrainian forces, because they were worried that Western journalists were broadcasting images, um, you know, say, uh, you know, there would be a missile strike in Lviv and then all of the correspondents, all the cameras would, would point in that direction. And Ukrainian forces were worried that that was giving Russians intel. Right. So um, that was the challenge the first time. This time, one of the biggest logistical challenges this has been well reported is the gas situation. So there is a major gas shortage in Ukraine right now. And it's a big country, the second biggest country in Europe. And it is very hard just to fill up the gas tank. And what we found was when we would have finally find a gas station that had fuel, uh, we were like, oh, thank God, we line up for a while, pay an exorbitant price for it, and then go. And then the car would stall like three minutes later. And we realized we got bad gas that had been mixed, I guess, with water or alcohol potentially. Um, so we were pulling over about every three or four minutes um, to stop the car, restart the car, that would do it. Then we drive three minutes, then the car stalls. And so it was just driving on bad gas across the second biggest country in Europe was a major challenge. And security, as you noted, is obviously the biggest challenge. Um, we had an excellent security expert with us um, the whole time. And he was also a weapons expert and was very good at you know scouring the open source intelligence about where exactly the Russians were how far away the front line was, the types of weapons they had, and whether we could get into a community. If we went into this particular community, would we be in range of Russian artillery, for example, or rocket fire? Um, and that's always a uh, consideration. And, you know, we were out of harm's way the vast majority of the time, but there were a couple moments that were hairy uh, north of Kharkiv where a mortar um, was, was shot, you know, I, what I consider to be too close to where we were, caught us a little bit by surprise and we got out of there. Uh, but when we were leaving, of course, we were leaving these villagers behind, old people, sick people, poor people who, who can't leave. And as we were pulling out of that community because we were afraid we were going to get killed, I was just staring at this woman sitting on her bench outside her house, an elderly woman who was too sick to leave. And so, of course, you know, we leave. I've left. Uh, but so many of them can't. Yeah, that's always, that's, that's really is for those who've never seen it, that really is the, the most gut wrenching part of this is this notion that, of course, you can just drive away, your story's done. Uh, but the people who you've just talked to that day are still there and you wonder about them for, I still wonder about people I interviewed back in 2014, if they survived, if they're okay. No, there's really no way of finding out. I'm speaking with Global News Senior Correspondent Jeff Seppel, just back from Ukraine. We're talking about his trip there, his recent trip there, his reporting there. We'll talk a bit more about some of the stories he found, including a fascinating one about a 15-year-old drone pilot after this. I'm speaking with Jeff Semple. He's Global News' senior correspondent just back from Ukraine on a reporting trip there, mostly to the east of the country where this war really continues to rage. Uh, but you did uh, revisit uh, uh, you know, moments back earlier in this conflict when Kiev was under threat and uh, the incredible story of a 15-year-old drone pilot, uh, an amateur, who, who did some remarkable things to, that really helped save his town. How did, you, how did you find him and what was his story? Yeah, you know, it's it was that was one of the definitely one of the most memorable stories of if not of this trip of my career. I mean, meeting this young fifteen year old, he we so we I wanted to do a story about drones because you know I've been talking to so many people there about what a game changer drone drone technology has been in this conflict, and where you know drones for years have been a tool of war, but in Ukraine we've seen a proliferation of consumer level drones, so the type of things that you know our kids play with in Canada, um, you know, that can be you know, bought for a few hundred dollars. Um, there are thousands of these that have been deployed by civilians in Ukraine to help provide some extra sets of eyes in the skies for the Ukrainian military. So when Russia invaded um, back in February, some 
uh, drone shop owners uh, were in touch with the Ukrainian military. The military didn't actually have any short-range drones, so they put out a call basically on Facebook and asked civilian drone operators uh, if they would be willing to put their drones up in the sky to try and look out for Russian forces and then relay that information, the coordinates, to the Russian military. And so there was, you know, quite a remarkable response. They were pretty overwhelmed. A thousand plus people uh, volunteered to use their drones to help spot Russian forces, including the youngest volunteer, this 15-year-old who lived just outside of Kiev in a small town. Um, And so he was, I guess, basically turned out that he was the only drone operator, only experienced drone user in his town. He bought his drone as a toy last summer. Uh, really took to it. Used, he said he practiced with it every day, loved flying it, loved taking pictures from up high. And so suddenly um, in February, the Russians are approaching his town and he's the only one in town with a drone. And he, they hear that the Russians are very close, like within you know potentially two or three kilometers from the town. And so this kid agrees to go out and put up his drone. So he went out with his dad into a field near his house. They put the drone up over a major highway at night. Uh, and then suddenly he saw in the dark, a Russian vehicle turned its headlights on coming down the highway. And he saw that there was an armored convoy of Russian vehicles heading towards his town. So he took some pictures. His dad then sent those pictures and the coordinates to the Russian, to the Ukrainian military and the military destroyed the Russian armored column and uh, basically saved the town. That's such a remarkable story. And it just feels like it, it encapsulates something about, about how Ukraine has fought back so perfectly, that, that it's all hands on deck and just about anything you can offer, you offer, and, and how it's made a difference. Yeah, that's it. And, it, and you know, talking to the kid, it was, I mean, he's a teenager, 15, mm-hmm. but he, it was, it, it was you know, to, to that point, like, you know, what civilians are, Civilians are really, you know, there's no question in so many ways, civilian volunteers, as you say, are helping Ukraine win the war. Uh, but when they're that young, you know, I asked him, how did it feel when you did it? And he he said, you know, he felt really happy that he could help. Then he also said, sounded like quite conflicted. He said that, you know, but on the other hand, there were more people in those vehicles. And yes, they were occupiers, but they were still people. So he said he didn't really know how to explain how he felt about it. And you could just see in his eyes, like a 15 year old kid is trying to come to terms with the horror of all of this. It's, it was a lot to digest. Yeah, process just the sheer re- brutality of war itself, right? Um, yeah. What, what is this? I mean, there's been a lot of talk here over the last little while about sort of, you know, people maybe uh, tiring of the, you know, there's sort of this narrative that it's time to give Putin an off-ramp and, you know, maybe that the you know, public opinion in the West is shifting a bit. Are you sensing that over there as well? Are they watching to see how, what the mood is abroad and, and and wondering how long people are going to continue to support them yeah i think they're, they're the worry about that is palpable for sure um i think you know they were people over there were i think even more willing to talk to us on this trip because they're worried that you know they're they're appreciating that we're there and they're they're worried that that the attention might be fading um which you know feels inevitable right and um and especially as the focus is, you know, much more on the East, as you say, you know, this is, that's a war that's been going on for eight years uh, that we, you know, most people weren't paying attention to. It's on a much larger scale now, uh, but it's still, you know, in, in large part, the same region of the country that has been at war. 
um, just more of it. But yeah, I think they're, they are concerned uh, for sure. And, you know, they've said that the message almost regardless of who you talk to over there, they're, you know, they say we, we just need more weapons from the West. Like we just, we don't need soldiers. There are a lot of Canadian cowboys and American cowboys who have gone over there to try and, you know, play war. Um, they don't want that. What they want is, is weapons and they need, you know, artillery, uh, right now, this is really an artillery war. It's a game of inches now, uh, I guess, slow grinding artillery war in the East. So that's what that's what the Ukrainians need and want. Um, but they are very concerned that, yeah, the longer this drags on, the harder it's going to be to convince, you know, countries, particularly the United States, to continue providing this steady supply of weapons, which up till this point have allowed Ukraine to be as successful as they've been. I know you haven't had a lot of time to process all that you've seen already, but uh, where do you think this is headed? What's your sense now of, of what happens next in Ukraine? At what point is, is Vladimir Putin satisfied with this grotesque war that he's, you know, the so-called special military operation? Uh, like he, they're very, Russians are, are quite close to capturing the province of Luhansk now. Although, you know, Severodonetsk is putting up a big fight. Like they're, it's by not. It's certainly not a done deal. But if if Russia were to capture the province of Luhansk, then turn its attention to Donetsk, um, then you know Russia has the Donbass, and the Donbass is you know the at least in the most recent version of the Kremlin's tale, it, the Donbass is this, their stated objective. So if they were to get the Donbass, which is eastern Ukraine industrial heartland, would that be enough for Putin? Um, I guess is one question. And the other question, of course, is, you know, I don't see the Ukrainians and President Zelensky being happy with that. So they'll continue to fight. Well, Jeff Semple, thanks so much for your time tonight. Welcome home. Glad that you're back safe and sound. And congratulations on, you know, some really excellent reporting over there. It was very enlightening, I think, for all of us who continue to watch uh, what's happening in Ukraine. Yeah, thanks, Ben. Always a pleasure talking to you. And thanks for uh, putting a spotlight on it. I appreciate it.